1: Guest. I'm your co-host Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky Evan Ratliff. You seem kind of subdued. Those are your most soothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Welcome to the smooth sounds of, of, of Aaron Lammer. There's no reason to rush.
2: I prefer Zugu, Aaron.
1: Well, I'll tell you, actually, I'm I'm off caffeine.
2: I literally just got you a coffee,
1: M- Max. This is this is, a fi- <laughs> this is a fictional show. Whereas I have a narrative, my character has a narrative. He hurts his back, then he gets off caffeine, he gets an awesome mattress, and it saves everything. This is the first time I've come to understand this is a fictional show.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you know that Aaron was also interviewed for his incredible pitchman skills?
1: I actually play both characters often on the show when <laughs> I do interviews. Who was on the show this week? Katie J. M. Baker uh, from BuzzFeed. She is an investigative reporter um, whose work I've admired for some time. She was previously at Newsweek. Before that, she was at Jezebel. I think she was actually when she was at Jezebel, she was the only. Reporter at Jezebel, mm. who was um, doing reported stories full time. She's r- done a lot of really interesting stuff around colleges and how they um, respond to sexual assault allegations and how the justice system handles that. Her work is a deep, deep dive into whatever she's going into. So Great. Do we have any sponsors this week? We do. Casper. What's Casper? It's an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. This is not a joke. They will send you a mattress as they sent me a mattress. The mattress arrives in a box that you couldn't fit one cushion from your couch in this box and then it just blows up and it's a full-size mattress. It's some of the best sleep I've ever had. It's significantly improved my back health. All these claims can be documented by talking to me, (laughs) Aaron Lammer on Twitter. Um, But we have a special offer for our listeners. You're gonna get $50 off any mattress you purchase from Casper, go to casper.com, c a s p e r like the ghost.com/longform, um put in promo code longform you'll get that 50% off and support the show. Mattress
2: shopping is really awful. Oh. Yeah, god, those it's mattress like, town or whatever. Yeah, it's like a used car thing. W- one of the great shopping experiences of my life was with David Samuels at a mattress shop. Yeah. That man can sh- can shop for a mattress. He's the only person who doesn't need Casper. Anyone else? When I could go, see Samuel selling mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> he, <laughs> he was amazing. He like he knew all the, the tricks. He got a mattress for, like I don't know, a tenth of what the list price was. It's like yeah, I didn't even know you could negotiate for mattresses. Who else is sponsoring the show this week? Uh, we have a couple more sponsors. The second one is Scribd. Scribd is a subscription book service that lets you read and listen like you own every book in the world. Uh, you get unlimited access to more than half a million books, 30,000 audiobooks, your phone, your tablet, your web browser. It's just eight ninety nine a month. And if you go to Scribd.com slash long form, you get the first three months free. Three months? Three months, half a million books. It's quite a promotion. Totally yeah. And then you read a lot of books,
1: then what do you want to do? Talk about them. You want to talk about them. If you want to talk about them, you might- send out emails to your friends but you just be typing their emails over and over again unless you went on tiny letter if you want a tiny letter you can start an email newsletter like many of the ones that we here subscribe to and uh you'll probably become more popular probably establish your personal brand
2: you might even establish your personal brand then you can yeah yeah i was gonna
1: say a joke but actually um it's from last week
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right here's aaron with katie and baker
1: Hello and welcome, Katie J.M. Baker. Hello. Katie, you are a reporter at BuzzFeed presently. Are you across all BuzzFeed verticals or are you linked to a specific one?
3: BuzzFeed News. Okay.
1: The story of yours that like really has like stuck in my head and I've thought about a lot afterwards, so I kind of want to just get off and talk about is the story you published about Charity Johnson, who is a con woman, but not necessarily... uh, in the, in the traditional model of a con. For people who haven't read the story, just give a summary of, of who she is and what you reported on.
3: Charity Johnson's 35th birthday is actually this week. When she was 34 earlier this year, she was arrested for pretending to be a 14 year old and she was going to 10th grade at a really small private school. She was living with a 30 year old woman she had met at work so she was calling this woman mom but she was actually younger than Charity was. She had tricked all of these people into believing she was a teenager and it ran as this kind of scandalous local news story that you know the Daily Mail repurposed and Gawker and a lot of ballots and I saw it and I just was like that's people don't just do that for no reason. Yeah. It really, seems like a really sad, weird story. So I was, I set a Google Calendar alert and was like, I'm going to come back to this when everyone forgot about it.
1: The enduring memory I have of the story was that like, she was rare as a con because she was conning not for money but for love. And yeah. that's actually very hard to detect. Most of our legal system is set up to stop people from stealing money from each other, not stop people from thieving love from each other at what point like in the journey from this being like a local news story to what you ended up with did you did you come to that realization and and sort of focus your story around that as a way to explain her her actions
3: everyone that came into contact with charity also wanted something from her which i thought was really interesting so osaremi the woman who outed her to the press, she's the one who actually said, I mean, it's the kind of quote you really hope for as a reporter. She said she's not a con artist for money. She's a con artist for love. And oh, that was a quote. Yeah, Interesting. Okay. I mean, that was kind of the exact quote I was looking for. Right. It, was, it was perfect because that is how I felt about her. But no, it wasn't even my quote.
1: There's a saying about cons that like, you can't get conned if you're not greedy. You don't yeah, go, if totally. you don't go play the like cup game, you don't lose your money in the cup game. And in this story, it sort of takes the guise as you can't get con unless you're, I guess, needy. In terms of like the ethics of reporting a story like this, at what point in the story did you tell her, hey, I'm writing a story about you?
3: I texted with her for over a month. She did not want me to write the story, but I felt like because she was already famous in the news and she was, you know, had affected so many people who wanted to speak out on the record about the pain that yep. she had caused them that... In this case, I didn't really feel like I needed her consent.
1: So when you're developing someone like charity and you're like, okay, she doesn't want me to write the story, but she's not like she hasn't blocked my number and like she hasn't stonewalling me. Like how do you build on trust in a relationship like that? Like how what's the first thing you say and how do you how do you build someone who is still on the line into someone who's helping you?
3: I try and be really upfront about why I think they should do this story and why I want to do this story. With Charity, I said, look, I want to write this story. You've, your name is already in international media. I've looked into this. I see that you went through a lot growing up, and I want to explain that what happened to you is it's part of this larger issue we have in terms of foster care, in terms of social services, in terms of general human empathy. I think your story could help other people in this situation. I also think it would make you look way less crazy, you know? And so I felt like there was really an incentive for her to want to do the story. So I tried that. And she said she's not interested. She wanted to move on with her life. And so, I, you know, I'd kind of keep her up to date as my investigation went on. I said I would say I talked to this man you formerly called your father. I mean, I talked to so many people who knew her. I wanted her to know what was going to be in there. And I right. sent her everything. You know, I obviously didn't send her a draft, but I... I outlined what was going to be in there from her personal records because if she had a problem with any of them or something in there was really personal, I wanted to give her the chance to take it out.
1: And did she did she ask you to remove anything?
3: No, that that's the thing. We had this kind of uneasy back and forth over email and text where she didn't want to participate. You know, I said, Are you still doing this? I have reason to believe you are. And she deleted her Facebook and her Instagram and her Twitter, she made them private that day and said, no, I'm not doing it anymore.
1: So you stated one of one of the ambitions of this story was to partially refute this kind of like, look at this like crazy woman kind of a story. And now the story's been out for a while, like what was the reaction like?
3: It was amazing. It made me so happy. First of all, it not to brag, but it did amazing on our site. I mean it got over 1.2 million page views which even for buzzfeed for that's a lot it was you know six thousand words or something and something i really like about working for buzzfeed is that people read it on facebook and so it reaches people who might not read other outlets i've written for before you know people who don't read the news all the time even maybe and are just clicking on things that they see
1: so let's talk a little bit about working at buzzfeed you've um You've left a uh, a trail of publishers in your wake. <laughs> I think the first thing I saw by you was at the San Francisco Chronicle, yes. the newspaper of my youth. And you moved on from there. I saw you do something in the New York Times. Then you were at Jezebel, Newsweek, now BuzzFeed. What's different about writing for BuzzFeed?
3: Something I really like about BuzzFeed is that it's sometimes overwhelmingly collaborative in a way that I've never been edited so well at any other place I've worked or freelanced for. I've never felt so much support for my work. There's somebody um, that, you know, on that team that actually um, went to my high school, but a little or like years before me. So we kind of have a nice relationship. And he came over to me and he said, I just want you to know that your story is doing amazing. And this is the kind of thing we would show in a presentation because it shows that people do read really quality long-form work. I know. I was
1: like, I, I kind of want, like, now I want the data from your story so mm-hmm. I could use it in our own pitching about long-form, which yeah, is like something well, we're trying to, <laughs> to well, something that we're trying to say it's all the true. time is that like, it's a very, yeah. it's very different when you look down your Facebook wall and you see like nine pieces of clickbait and then there's one 6,000-word story. That count of one read on that 6,000-word story means significantly yeah. different thing than those other ones do. So, If it doesn't affect your reporting from sort of a numerical standpoint, the audience of BuzzFeed is it's a young audience, I would guess. Yeah. And it's potentially an audience that isn't also reading The Guardian, The New York Times. And like this is like it's a it's a new kind of media. It might be someone who has never uh, subscribed to The New Yorker who's reading the Mm 6000 word piece. Is that something that you think about, like writing to younger people?
3: Definitely. And that's one of the reasons that I love working at BuzzFeed. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to. My beat has always involved young people. I've, you know, I've covered reproductive health. I've covered sexual assault. most, I've covered higher education. I remember when there was a whole debate over emergency contraception and whether 14 year olds should be able to buy it over the counter I was reading all these articles and I thought, why has nobody interviewed a 14-year-old? About yeah. It? Well, you know, obviously it's harder to interview teenagers because you need to be, you need to get parental permission. You need to be really upfront with them about how their words will be used. But when, when reporting on young people, I want to talk to them and I want them to be reading my work. And I'm doing a, working on a story right now about two single-sex schools in Austin, a, this really low-income school that decided to split up into two schools based on widely debunked pseudoscience. And I was interviewing a fifteen year old for it and he goes, Wait, this is BuzzFeed? That's the only place I watch the news. And <laughs> I didn't even really know what he meant, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. I mean, we have video content, but I was I hadn't he he got really excited and he sent me like 10 emoji and I just was like, Well that's great. I'm glad <laughs> you watch your news on BuzzFeed. So I think it's cool to work for a place that does reach like people who don't subscribe to The New Yorker.
1: So it plays with the 15-year-olds. On the flip side, when you have to go and interview someone who's 55, there's a certain reputation to like a sort of internet startup-y company. Mm -hmm. Do you have to sell that you're doing something serious coming from BuzzFeed?
3: That's definitely something that I think I worry about more than I need to. I felt that way at Jezebel also because I was the only reporter there. So, I mean, it was harder for me at Jezebel because there wasn't any other reporting on the site. So I had to explain that what I was doing was different. Whereas on BuzzFeed, it's interesting. I was just in West Virginia a month or two ago working on a piece about juvenile incarceration, and the head of this government task force said, we were all really nervous that BuzzFeed was coming. And I went, I have a spiel, you know, oh, we have Pulitzer Prize yeah. winning investigative journalists. And, you know, I, I have a whole like list of... And you like
1: pop out the slideshow. Yeah. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> and he goes, oh no, we were worried because BuzzFeed is such a big news organization. He wasn't worried about what I thought he
0: was worried about. Yeah, he was know? like
1: worried that he, you were like blowing up Yeah, spot. exactly. <laughs> and
3: so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm like quick to explain what it is. Yeah. And sometimes... I don't have to be and I, I think obviously in the media world people know that BuzzFeed's doing serious yeah, journalism absolutely. but like my, my, I have a 22 year old brother and he when I you know when I got my job he went BuzzFeed don't they do lists so yeah. but I, I really think that's changing and it, it hasn't been a, a barrier for me
1: hey this is your host Quick word from our sponsor, Casper. Uh, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses. So you've heard people who've sponsored this show before, like Warby Parker, making it easier to buy glasses, Harry's shaving, making it easier to get your shaving stuff. There's one thing that everyone would like to not do it's go buy a mattress from a mattress warehouse it's just a horrific experience so what casper offers is pretty excellent it's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price so if you go out and buy one from a mattress place you're definitely paying over 1500 casper is 500 for a twin size mattress 950 for a king size mattress They deliver it right to you. It's a totally risk-free trial. You've got 100 days to return it, free delivery, free return. Uh, They sent us one. I've been sleeping on it. I got a bad back. It's been excellent. Uh, It's got latex foam and memory foam, which is kind of two techniques it works. I, uh, I highly recommend it. They're made in America and our listeners can get $50 off their purchase by going to casper.com slash long form, put in promo code long form. You get $50 off and support the show. So after you get your Casper mattress, you're probably going to be spending so much time in bed that you're going to need something from our second sponsor, Scribd. Uh, Scribd is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to the largest library of ebooks and audiobooks out there. So I want you to go over to scribd.com/longform. They'll give you a 3 month free trial. W- what does that come with? What what does the membership entail? You get more than a half a million ebooks, including books by best selling authors like David McCullough, Annie Dillard, and Francine Prose. Plus if you'd rather listen, say if you got a commute, um, they've got thirty thousand audiobooks in their library, including books from people who've been on the show, like John Heileman, Nancy Joe Sales, and David Kushner. That's all the books you could ever want to read or listen to, available on your phone, tablet, and web browser, all for just $8.99 in a month, and you're getting three free months to start. That's unlimited listening in your car, on the train, at the gym, wherever the story takes you. So go to Scribd.com slash longform. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash longform. You'll get three free months, and you'll be supporting this show. Thank you, Scribd. Here I am back with Katie J.M. Baker. So what attracts you to young people as a topic?
3: When I started reporting, my first job was, my first full-time job was at the San Francisco Chronicle. I think my title was digital media producer, actually. I worked for Phil Bronstein, who is the executive editor, and then had a kind of a job with a loftier title at Hearst. Now he runs the Center for Investigative Reporting. And he was kind of, you know, he, he was a great first boss he would let me do whatever I wanted as long as I did my duties for him and then you know I so I could write for the paper and I was just trying to worm my way into the newsroom and I was you know I was 22 so it was I felt like I had access to stories that the older people on staff didn't and so I realized that was a way to kind of get published and similarly when I went to Jezebel. I was, I think, 24 when I started there, and I realized that I had access to what students on college campuses were doing and thinking in a way that other people didn't. Because, like I said, I look young, and I'm a pretty easy person to talk to. I don't, I'm not, I don't come off intimidating, which is purposeful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, teenagers aren't afraid to talk to me, and that again, worked really well to my advantage. And that's why I started covering stuff like Greek life and campus sexual assault, because I had access to those stories in a way that other reporters didn't. And as I built up my experience, I felt that, you know, I had something to offer where I could go where younger people were going, but I had more experience than younger reporters. And so it that's just it's just always worked out really well for me.
1: How do you penetrate, like, the world of, of the young when you're, like, covering, like, Greek life or something like that? Or I don't know. I feel like there are things that, like, the minute you're gone from college, you're like, have lost them. Like, how do you keep keep a foot in that world?
3: I have really good sources. I've had some sources for years. You know, that's pretty much it. People tell me things. People. Um, I have a lot of college sources. I hope that doesn't go away. I also just—they they
1: must be aging out of college. You just—you keep, but like they any, pass it on. They or, pass it on. You
3: know, if I hear about something happening, I'll just I'll just email. I mean, I I think. I'm 27 now, and I assume that as I get older, it will obviously become harder, and I also think I'll get sick of, you know, in the few beats that I've had, I've eventually tired of them and wanted to move on a little bit, so I can only assume that will keep happening and that eventually no one will want to talk, like a 15-year-old won't be as psyched to talk to a, you know, 35, 40-year-old woman as she would be to talk to me. Right. So.
1: (laughs) So. The other interest that spans a lot across a lot of your reporting is criminal justice, not just criminal justice, just justice actually, justice in in all of its uh, forms. You've written extensively about sexual assault on campuses. You've been on this this beat um, for a bit, and it's interesting because, like, over the course of the time, I feel like certain angles on it have become. Cultural like you've I've read multiple stories and certain of the angles that you've done are, are very unique and haven't been and, and you were one of the first people I sort of noticed writing about it. So I'm interested in like how do you focus in on something like that? Do you say like I'm going to spend two years writing about sexual assault on campuses and here are the like 10 things I want to write about?
3: No, what, what happened was when I was at the Chronicle, I wrote a lot about reproductive health, abortion. Yeah, um, my biggest story there it was a front page story that prompted legislation about crisis pregnancy centers. And I wrote a story that a few months later resulted in a, the head of a school resigning.
1: This is the story about Ma, uh, Marlborough, Marlboro, yes. yes. And
3: I love just exposing kind of institutional injustice that affects marginalized people. So that my story at the Chronicle was... Really exciting and important for me. But, and then when I went to Jezebel, they already had somebody writing about um, reproductive health. So I kind of needed to come up with something new. She, Erin Ryan, writes about politics and abortion, and she's really funny and smart and good at that. So I was trying to come up with something to write about. Yeah. And this was two thou- early 2012. And so I. Was writing about colleges and one of the first big Title IX cases was um, at the University of Montana in Missoula, and I found a a kid there, twenty year old. He had just come back from living there, and he had been a drug dealer to a bunch of people on campus. And he said, "I'll take you there, and you can hang out with my friends and see what it's really like to go there." So I said yes, and Jezebel let me go and. I wrote this big piece about, you know, rape culture and what it was like there and why they were under Title IX investigation. And it did really well and it felt really good. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to stick with this for a while. Wait,
1: but- I want to I rewind you on this story. Yeah. <laughs> so you're with the drug deal, like the yeah. former drug dealer. Yeah. And he's like, yo, come party with my friends. So like, what do you wear when you're going to party with some, some college students and their former drug dealer?
3: God, I don't know, probably... that's a good question I'm trying to answer it like are
1: you are you like hey I'm here from New York with my notepad are you like got the cat in the hat hat on and like a bong
3: I try really hard to make it clear to my sources I am not your friend this is on the record unless we explicitly say otherwise I am a reporter anything you say is something that could end up in my story. And when I went to Missoula, I made that very clear. But the 20-year-olds who saw me, and you can see what I look like. I look very young now. They were all
1: high when you fell Yeah.
3: (laughs) This was also three or four years ago, right? So I looked even younger, and they kind of just forgot that I was a reporter, which, you know, is hard. I really do try and make it very, very clear. And for that reason, I've never had problems. No one ever feels violated, but I think they might feel dumb because – I just kind of hung out, you know, hung out with them and listened to them and they were way more candid with me than they had been with other reporters that covered the issue. Because it was Jezebel and they don't have a huge reporting budget, I said the the guy that I stayed with said I could stay with him and his friends in their big house. So I did. You know, I didn't even now, you know, BuzzFeed, all, like I have a hotel, I have a car, you know, they they're putting a lot of money and investment into reporting. Jezebel they paid for you know my ticket and for this guy's ticket and they did we just had a limited budget so I I stayed in this like disgusting gigantic house with like 10 college students (laughs) Uh,
1: okay so gonzo journalism yeah Yeah. seriously (laughs) so when you're like when you're when you're building a, a story like this like one of the things that I find very skillful in your reporting and and I like I'm I'll cite the um uh, I think this was actually in the story you wrote about that the Canadian college. So very early on that in that story you say like the phrase rape culture and then you say dash uh sexual advances that like short short of intercourse that are like unwanted and the schools have like codes that stop stop them happening. I was like, "Whoa, why do we need the like 900 think pieces about rape culture existing like is it difficult to build on these stories when you have like if I had used the phrase rape culture there would have had to be like a six page digression <laughs> about the history of the world word rape culture is that a challenge when you're doing these stories that they're sort of they're building on these larger cultural ideas that are themselves quite complex and debated
3: well in terms of condensing definitions my editor is probably to thank for that okay so you had to all cut <laughs> <laughs> no but um in terms of you know i think the one good thing about being on a beat is you really get to know it and so you know it took me a while to really understand how colleges operated how these graduated levels of coercion and consent play out among young people and I think that most people who are reporting on this just simply in the same way where if I reported on a topic I wasn't familiar with, I wouldn't be able to come at it from a original angle or with so much thought because I've been thinking about this for years now, you know. So that piece was really complicated and really hard for me to write. Yeah. But, you know, I went there because I had been contacted by students who said that their school was covering up repeated sexual assault by the same students and it was this whole scandal so they
1: came to you the students. they came to me how, do, how does a student find you
3: so i read a few pieces about how there's this cottage industry around sexual assault consulting there's this pair of lawyers, Gina and Leslie Smith, and there's this guy, Brett Sokolo, and there's kind of this really small field, but they're at all the schools and they're like fixers. They're like this, it's like the scandal yeah. for um, college sexual assault. And I had written a piece about these fixers, and this student read it, and she said, That's what's happening at my school. And I had never heard of Quest which is this tiny college in Squamish. And I Googled it, and I just thought, wow, I want to go there. It's yeah. beautiful. It's really strange. It was being run by this astrophysicist that used to teach at Columbia University. It's, just, it's the only private school of its kind in Canada. So I was really fascinated. And I also thought she kind of positioned it as there's this big scandal that's being covered up because we're a new school, and the school doesn't want to lose money liability reasons so I went there and it was so much more complicated I read I got to read the complaints and I you know got to interview a bunch of people including the guys that you know or one of the men that they were accusing and there's this movement right rape is rape where we're supposed to say you know there's no gray area which I think is really important in a lot of ways in explaining to people that it doesn't have to be what you think of as that act to constitute assault. But then these schools are kind of either it's rape and they're cracking down or it's nothing and you're a liar. Right. And there's no space to talk about all these other things that are happening. These women had, you know, legitimate issues and and had been through some really awful things. But... I understood at the same time why their school did not consider it sexual assault.
1: So it seems to me like part of what attracts you to to the university system is that it's a microcosm for society at large, but we can talk about it like in this weird, isolated, so weird. small community way. And it seems like part of what's what's going wrong is that we we assume that if we – That that microcosm maybe will um, perform better than society on these things or will like be out ahead of society. And it seems like a lot of what your work is grappling with is sort of where it falls short of that or where it in some ways can be worse than outside society. Is that tricky for you? Like it doesn't fit into the neatest narratives at times like what you just described was not neat. Like I, I think of that story that I think it was a times magazine story that was a, um about the woman who is carrying her mattress around Columbia. And it's like, Oh, that one's it's so good. It's got like such a good image. And it's like, it's so clear kind of what's happening. And it seems like a lot of what you're encountering is full of gray areas.
3: Yeah. I think it's really hard as somebody who, you know, as a feminist, I want to believe all women. And I love this conversation that's happening as a reporter. I think facts and nuance are important, and I strive to write these kind of survivor focused oriented pieces that aren't afraid to talk about nuance. And something I remind myself is I don't have to, there's nobody knows the solution to campus adjudication right now. It's very complicated. We're acting very quickly. This is all, you know, this has become a big issue just in a few years, right, in, in its current iteration. And my goal is to write stories that illustrate that these are really complicated situations and that doesn't mean we should be afraid of delving into them.
1: Do you actively have to edit out? Like I remember when you were just telling me the story there, Mm -hmm. you kind of gave me like a quick aside where you're like, I think that's really fucked up. But, and then you, you came like right back to the story. Like, do you have to control how much of your voice and views pass through into a story? Is that attention?
3: I'd say my most meaningful reporting experience I've ever had was in Steubenville. This is when I was working at Jezebel and I got a tip about Steubenville months before the New York Times wrote the big story on it. And I had just done my Missoula story. is obviously not going to find me out to talk to every 16-year-old girl who, you know, said she was assaulted. But well, Especially
1: because I mean, you're like your email box is like a national hotline <laughs> well, yeah. at this point. I mean, I to,
3: to be honest, I thought I got this the tip and it was from the... Alexandra Goddard, who's the, the blogger that kind of made that story come to light, you know, and I thought, wow, this is really sad and awful. This happens every day in every city, you know, yeah. it seemed really complicated. I didn't really think about it. And then the New York Times did this big story on it. And I felt kind of angry that I hadn't paid it more attention. I thought, you know, I, I was at Jezebel, I would report, but I would also do commentary yeah. um, different stories. And I started reading about it more and I covered Anonymous getting involved and I covered the trials and, and I felt really confident in my assessment of the story. And then when I went, to, I went to Steubenville a year after the sexual assault to cover what their first football game was like or maybe it was their homecoming game. It was the first big game of the season and I was face to face with these people who I had been writing about without really knowing much about them and I just realized that the story was a lot more complicated than it seemed you know for example there were these people that weren't even there the night of this girl's rape that if you google their name it says they masterminded it from far away it seems like do these details matter do we care if these people's lives get mixed up when the narrative is so strong when Steubenville now stands for more awareness around You know, rape culture. But when you're there, it's just, of course, it matters. You know, maybe in terms of messaging and activism, you need these clear cut models like Emma, who's carrying on her mattress, which is such a powerful statement. But in terms of really delving into these issues, you can't be afraid to be accurate. And after that piece is when I realized that I didn't want to blog anymore and that I wanted to just focus on reporting.
1: So, right now, you are working on a new piece yes. that is uh, number seven hundred and fifteen <laughs> in your series on uh, college sexual assaults, and this story uh, is not not out yet. And I was like, no, 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 send it to me. And you said, no, there's a legal embargo um, because of the case. So tell us a little bit about the story, and yeah. as much as and by the time this airs, the story will be out. Oh, yeah, so I can tell be you everything. Tell me every. <laughs> in fact, just take it out and read oh, the entire story. Now give me give me the yeah. two minute version.
3: Well, this is such an amazing time for highlighting the voices of women who were sexually assaulted on a college campus. Not only in the media, but women are filing complaints against their schools, they're speaking out, they're protecting their friends all across the country because so many people are doing it that it's created this groundswell. And it's really amazing. You know, for a long time I wondered, well, you know, where are the men that they're accusing? What's happening to them? Are they... Still at their schools without being punished.
1: Uh, are they continuing the same patterns? Yeah. Of are they go-
3: are they going to repeat their behavior or are they learning from the experience? And the only people that have written a- anything from their perspective clearly have an agenda where they think girls are liars. They think campus sexual assaults a myth. They think there's a millennial hysteria. I think that reporters are scared to take this issue on because why should we care about these guys' stories? Yes. You know? This isn't their time. I also think these guys are scared to talk to the media. But I really, for a few months, have really wanted to talk to some of these guys and just figure out what they're thinking, what they're doing. And so that's the piece I've been working on. And I interviewed three men who were found responsible for sexual misconduct by their schools.
1: Give me, let's take one of their stories. Like, well, who, who's yeah, the most okay. interesting? I'll, of I'll the give start. you an
3: example. There's one guy who we'll call Kevin. That's what I call him in my story. And he was a senior at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and he was a student government representative. And he was—he described himself to me as, you know, a social justice bro. He was in a frat, but he was also, you know, campaigning for a divestment and he was supportive of the gender-neutral bathrooms. And he had organized bystander training, rape prevention for his fraternity, and spoke out a lot about, you know, how awful sexual assault was. So he, on the surface, he was like a good, really good guy. And in December. Of two thousand and thirteen, he got really drunk, and um he texted another person, a, a woman who will call Melanie, who was also a senior on the student government. and he said basically drunken and incoherent text messages, the gist was he said, "Can I come over and hook up with you? They had never hooked up before. And she said, She she basically said, you can come over, but that's not going to happen. We're not going to hook up. She was not interested, and he sent her some texts. Um, He kind of just kept sending her, oh, please. He called her a babe, and he called her a slut, and then he passed out on his couch, and then he woke up the next morning, and he said, you know, what did I do? I'm so embarrassed, and he texted her, and he said, I'm really sorry, and she said, don't worry about it. We all say stupid shit when we're drunk. And that was that. And then a few months later, she helped introduce a resolution or proposal, whatever you want to call it, that would mandate all of Wesleyan's fraternities or all, you know, there's like two, to be co-ed. And Kevin did not think that that was a good solution. He didn't want to mandate it. And they got into an argument about it. And there were these tensions were really high leading up to the final vote. And he was called into the dean's office during that time and told that she had reported the text that he had sent her in December, this is April, and said it was sexual harassment. So he was dealing with that. And then while he's dealing with that issue, another one of her friends comes forward and says that Kevin, four years ago, during their first week of freshman year, non-consensually kissed her. Another girl came forward and said that he had non-consensually kissed her. That one was later dropped and found it wasn't sustained but he went through the hearing process which he said was a lot of his complaints about the process echoed those of accusers you know that it was inequitable that it was you know according to wesleyan's own policies wasn't fair he wasn't given enough time for to prepare his questions that he submitted to be asked were ignored he was found responsible for sexual misconduct for the non-consensual kiss from four years ago and he was found responsible for sexual harassment for the texts. And he was, this was a few weeks before he was supposed to graduate. And he was suspended for a year, couldn't get his diploma. So he tried to appeal, it was unsuccessful. He moved on, and he already had a job working for a congressperson on the Hill in DC. So he goes to his job. Um, you know, he can't tell any of his friends where he is, obviously, or why he didn't graduate. Somebody calls his job and says, Did you know that this person was found responsible? for sexual misconduct and sexual harassment and they fired him and that's when he hired a lawyer and a quote he said to me that i thought was really interesting was you know like i don't understand what they want me to do they didn't want me to participate in student government and i didn't i so i did that they didn't want me to be at school anymore and i did that but now they don't want me to have a job they don't want me to move on with my life like what what do they want from me and that's kind of why i wanted to do this story because i thought you know what do we want from these guys and it seemed like Wesleyan was really cracking down for for low level offenses, in my opinion, not in his, but if a school wants to really crack down on these, you know, kind of lower level offenses, you know what? Like maybe go ahead. But, you know, they don't know if it's on his transcript forever. It's costing him jobs. Yeah. And so I thought that that was really a good question. Like, what shouldn't he do? Should it be on his record forever? Sometimes there's men like at, at the University of Virginia recently there's like that awful case where there was this like rapist murderer and in his case it wasn't on his record he was able to transfer he was accused of sexual misconduct at a few other schools and he just transferred around and then he like raped and killed people yeah or you know i don't know where the allegedly and that's you know in that case you go well how could the schools not have put something on his record yeah but in a case like kevin's or I thought he had a compelling argument that it shouldn't have been on his record.
1: So you went fact, 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 fact. And then you were like, in my opinion, and you kind of gave me the like, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what to do, but like I've thought about this and like here's what I think about it. And I'm interested in that part of your work, the part where you're like, I've talked to Survivor, so you you, you have a fact on it, Mm -hmm. but like this is a feminist issue, what happens to these men, and here's like what I think about it. So I'm interested in like that, that part of your work where you opinion is the wrong word it's like let me summarize these facts and like something you could think about them once you've internalized all of them how much of your own like person and, and who you are and what you think goes into that work like how yeah. how 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 far can you get away from the facts before it gets troubling for you
3: honestly if i go into a story thinking i know what i think I'm only satisfied if I come out of it at some point feeling the complete opposite. I don't believe in objectivity, you know, but I want people to, to draw their own conclusions. So my goal with this story, for example, if someone reads it and goes, it was right that Kevin was treated so harshly and lost his job, that's fine. If someone reads it and goes, this is awful and he shouldn't have been treated that way, that's fine too. You know, I I want to just report stories accurately in an interesting, compelling way so that people go, this isn't as easy as I thought it was. I find that if I'm challenging my own perceptions of how a story should work or how things should be, then hopefully I will challenge other people's perspectives as well.
1: well. The way you described it seems very reasonable to me. And then you take a place like Jezebel. There are people who are writing at Jezebel who are writing from a very different perspective, and a perspective that I would say does is activist in a way, mm-hmm. and is a opinion based, and is a, is based on potentially enacting change in the world. Mm-hmm. Was that a tension for you? Like, oh, I'm I'm out here reporting, and you're like mm-hmm. sitting at home here, like running your mouth off? I
3: think both are important. Um I think we need people writing op-eds and writing opinion and we also need people reporting. I mean there I think that's just two completely separate roles and I think I think the same person can do, you know, I've written a lot of commentary that I stand by. And I think you should be able to do that, and also report.
1: So um, once you um, graduate from sexual misconduct, you. um, I keep thinking I'm going to. What else do you want to do? Like, what is there? Like, are you kind of sick of this stuff? And you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I keep saying after every piece, I'm like, this is the last piece I'm writing about campus sexual assault. I think it was an underreported topic, and now it's an overreported topic. Interesting. There's a lot of bad reporting on the subject. There are a lot of people being assaulted and exploited that aren't going to Yale, you know, not to take away from what someone at Yale might experience, of course, but come on, you know, like, there's so much else going on in the world. After, I mean, this piece, I hope is my last for a while. I mean, I, I always say that I'm like, oh, there's this interesting angle. I really like writing stories that are investigative and that um. this sounds really cliche, but anything that gives marginalized groups of people of voice and holds powerful people accountable is something I'm interested in. And I think this is why I'm interested in young people as well, because no one usually is listening to them.
1: Seems like a good a place to stop. Isn't <laughs> you? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Katie J.M. Baker. Um, all these stories will be in the show notes. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Um, thanks very much to Katie, J.M. Baker for coming in. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max and Evan. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern, Rachel Mabe. Uh, the Atavist has a really excellent story out right now. It's called The Fort of Young Saplings. It's by Vanessa Vaselka, who wrote a really incredible story about um, a serial killer she encountered as a teen hitchhiker, um, which made me pretty interested in her career. So I checked out this book. Really enjoyed it. Check it out. We'll be back next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.